The art of negotiation is something anybody engaged in the property market needs to master. Or should we call it the science of negotiation? Plenty of people think they're good at negotiating. We hear boasts all the time in property circles. And I suspect sometimes that those who rate themselves the highest have possibly, in fact, been done over by superior negotiators. By that, I mean that they think they won because the other side was happy to let them think that they won. Is it time to ditch commonly used negotiation tactics such as aiming for a win-win, knowing your batner, that's your fallback position, or meeting in the middle, and instead study the psychology of deal-making? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, we've asked Michael Yardney along to discuss his book called Negotiate, Influence, Persuade, with the catchy byline, How to Persuade Others to Do What You'd Like Them to Do. The book's title suggests that negotiation is a life skill not something we need to just master to get the best property deal. But obviously, we'll be viewing this through a real estate lens today anyway. Michael is best known for heading up Property Update, which has been voted the world's number one property blog for the seventh year in a row. Uh, And he publishes an astounding number of articles, at least eight a day, with tips and strategies from a range of experts in the fields of property, finance, tax, money, wealth creation and success. He's also written a bunch of books, I think nine and counting. Thank you so much for coming along today, Michael. We've got some juicy questions for you. I think we're going to have fun talking about this, Veronica and Chris. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I mean, you, you sort of said there, Veronica, some people think they're good at negotiating. Um, I used to think I was good at negotiating, um, but now I realize I have no idea. Um, I talk too much. I, I probably tell them way too much. You know, I probably get too nervous too soon. And, you know, but it is such a skill, isn't it? And I think yeah, the people who are the most dangerous, the people who think they're the best negotiators, right? They, they're the ones who think they can pull something off and then they, they end up basically butchering themselves. So, so Michael, what got you to write the book? You know, out of all the things you could have written your eighth book about, why did you choose this? Well, I realized that life is a negotiation. I decided I wanted to be good at it. Interestingly, when I first learned about the art of this many, many years ago, there was a book written by Herb Cohen about the art of negotiation. I didn't even realize there was a science or an art. Just like you, I just went along and did what I did in life. I never learned those ideas from my parents. But once I learned about this, I realized that if you're a poor negotiator, you end up spending a fortune. If you're a good negotiator, you'll save a fortune. If you're a great negotiator, you'll make a fortune. So uh, I, I wanted to learn it. I did. I've taught my team and I actually want to teach other people because as Veronica said, we tend to get taken by experienced negotiators when you're in the real estate world. (laughs) We have a common heritage here, Michael. Our first episode of this podcast, which is now five years ago, delved into the 12 behavioural, or 12, not the 12, just 12 of, the behavioural biases that influence buyers at auction. And your book refers to many many of these same biases um, and how they impact us in the process of negotiating. So we're keen to, I guess... uh, untease out or unravel some of the hacks that we can use to hijack these biases. 
in ourselves. I remember your first episode, Veronica, and I was so impressed with it because you and I go to auctions on Saturdays and we see the game played out and innocent bystanders get taken, don't they? So you have to know what's happening on the other side. I remember that episode very well. So tell us, if you're being persuaded by somebody and you're falling for it, I mean, because we do, there's all these different biases, you know, you you, you refer to Robert Cialdini's book, which is, you know, was it the seven, are there seven or six um, powers of persuasion? Um, and sometimes we can be persuaded somebody who's better at actually persuading than they are at doing what they're selling as well, you know, but we want to fundamentally, I think emotionally, we, we tend to fall for things because we are unprepared. So I guess, you know, I'm, I'm keen to sort of, to see if we can find some hacks to actually save ourselves from ourselves. Well, I think the first thing is to realise that all life is a negotiation, whether it's uh, with your wife who takes out, or husband who takes out the rubbish at night, or what you watch on Netflix, or with your kids, do they do their homework? So it's as simple as things as that, or we all want to get the best car deal or the best table at the restaurant. Um, So life is a bargaining event. And so I think we should become a good negotiator, but you've got to understand that it is a negotiation. Uh, By the way, with things at home, you don't always have to win, but in the outside world, I know you said earlier on where they talk about a win-win. Most of us don't want a win-win, do we? We actually want to come out on top. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> I think I know the way you, you you deal on behalf of your clients also, Veronica, don't well, you? Well, it's funny. We were having this conversation because I've got a, a buyer's agent mentoring program and every week we have a, a we have a live mentoring session, right? And just literally got off the call before starting this, this podcast recording and we were talking about um, uh, one of the the people in the in the group, and I've experienced this myself. We've done all our due diligence on a property. Um, we know that the owner wants more for that property than it's probably worth, or that the market at the moment is is a buyer's market, so therefore we shouldn't have to pay what that owner wants. And yet the owner won't part for it for less than that. And we have a client who's an owner-occupier, not an investor, but owner-occupier for, for specific reasons, for unique reasons, they want to um, to go for that property because it suits them and they're prepared to pay. You know, they're prepared to pay what the owner wants. And we were having this sort of debate around, well, what's the role of a buyer's agent in this circumstance? You know, do we dig our heels in and let our ego get involved? Because we know better. We know it's, it's overselling. We know that that really and truly that uh, owner's greedy and why should they be rewarded for being greedy? Um, but at the same time, we have a client who said, I know that. I get it because you told us. You told me my eyes are open. This is a good buyer's agent. will do that, Right. My eyes are wide open. I get, I get that I'm paying a bit overs, but I'm hope, I'm happy to because this suits my my needs. So under those circumstances, the win isn't so. I mean, the buyer's agent might want to feel the win of screwing a deal and not overpaying, but the win really is about the client getting what they want. You know, interesting. That's the best negotiation when you get the deal done, rather than being overly smart. So if the buyer gets what he wants and every time he comes home, his eyes light up and his heart sings, you've done them a favour. So it's interesting, isn't it? And and whereas some buyer's agents would not necessarily allow their client to know that they're overpaying, they might not have confidence in their own ability to, to I guess, educate and guide their client. You know, they might, they might hoodwink their client. So that's... I don't know. It's complicated though, isn't it? And so there's all these little little negotiations that are going on in this sort of thing. 
Okay, so what we're really saying is the other party has a trained negotiator. We know that McGrath and all the other agencies, every Monday they have training sessions, they have the best trainers there teaching their agents to negotiate on behalf of their vendor. That's their job. And that's why we both believe that it's important for purchasers to have somebody, a professional negotiator on their side. But negotiation isn't only about price, is it, Veronica? There's lots of other things involved as well. So sometimes you've got to pay more to get that right property. And, you know, your vendor, your, sorry, your client, when they, in 10 years' time, when they look back, whether they paid 50000 more in Sydney, it's not going to make a difference. It's interesting. We literally had a client buy an hour ago, um, and they were upgrading um, south of Sydney. You know, this is a $3 million-plus property. And, you know, those, that type of property is not transacting much at the moment. You know, a lot of the vendors are sitting on those properties, et cetera. So it's rare stock, but it's interesting. The negotiation on this one was they made an offer yesterday and the agent was said there was apparently three buyers out there, you know, one moving down from Sydney, you know, another two moving down from Sydney and they're a local just upgrading. And, uh, no, but we like your offer because the terms are great. They had to settle on a particular day because they were going overseas or something. But it's interesting. The agent called him at 1130 and said, or 1130 or 1230 or something. And said, um, look, I like your offer. They they like your offer the most of terms, but it's just a little bit under what the other offers are. And um, and I was like, that does not sound right, right? Like, that just, just sounds like, and he said to me, that doesn't sound right, does it? Anyway, so I said, let's just give him half an hour and see what happens and see if he calls you back. Um, and literally under an hour later, <laughs> the agent called back and said, they'll take the offer. Um, and, you know, so it, it's, what was the key there for the client? Like, they, he also said the day before on Monday, he said, oh, uh, you, you're not sure, you're not really happy with your, your offer and your terms. Can you offer us the maximum you were going to offer and maybe change the terms a little bit? Like, and so he just changed his offer the same price and then just set, changed the settlement date to what they wanted. Um, so what, what's your thought of, thoughts here? Like, Chris, I think every time you negotiate, you either feel you're being in control or you're feeling you're uncomfortable because somebody's controlling you. So either you've got the upper hand or you feel intimidated. And I think there's three areas of power in negotiation. And I think you discussed most of those over the last couple of minutes. First of all, there's time power. If you're under time pressure, then you feel uh, that you don't have as much influence. And that happens at auctions, doesn't it? Where there's a set date and a set time, it all happens. So sometimes they set the deadline or as a negotiator, buying, you can set the deadline. I think the other area of power is information power. The more information you've got in general, the more power you possess. So that's where a good buyer's agent understands not just the local market, but the language of agents and how they negotiate and what they're thinking, what their process is. So not just information about the real estate market and medium prices and what's happening, but 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 the game. And I think the third power we have is alternative options. Uh, if that's the only option you've got, you actually are under the pump. Uh, so therefore, again, whether it's the dream home or an investment property, we've been in the markets long enough, the three of us, to know another one will come round. So it's the balance of power that makes you feel either comfortable or not. I love the negotiation principle, which is no more than the other party. And it's such a good one. And it's something that I talk to people all the time about one of the real benefits of an experienced buyer's agent, particularly a local specialist, because they are the sales agent always knows more than the buyer. 
actually knows more than the buyer's agent too. But at least the buyer's agent is best equipped to start to fill in the gaps and start to say, right, well, we've got these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. There might be 20 pieces in this puzzle. If we can put four in, then we can sort of sketch in what we think is going to be in those four pieces. And as we gather information, we're going to start fleshing out what this jigsaw puzzle looks like. And so that is very much a big part of what we do in our practice. Uh, we're, we're filling in the gaps so that we can try to know as much as the other party knows. And this is where a lot of buyers go in completely unprepared. They, they often focus too much attention on these scenarios in their heads about what other buyers are doing. And they're not focused at all in the information that the agent has that they don't have. And the agent has all of that information at the disposal, which is why they're advising the vendor to either go to auction or to take offers or to push or to not push or whatever. And like even this morning, I was talking to a, a very old client of mine who, who rang me and said, I found this property and I've got, I've got to sell my home in a hurry because I found this property and can you help me? And I said, why do you have to sell in a hurry? Oh, well, because, you know, there's another buyer on it. They're just trying to get their deposit organized. But I've got my deposit. And I said, guess what? That's a line. It's bullshit. And how do you know? And it's, I just know because it is a line we hear all the time and you've only heard it once. So for you, it seems true. For me, it is just a line. And, you know, sure enough, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Now, of course, pa information is powerful, but I also think you should act dumb. Buyers agents speak the same language as real estate agents, so I'm not suggesting a buyers agent should act dumb because you, you can actually cut through the. Uh, I was going to say you can say that on this podcast. <laughs> but now you can say it on your show. Having said that, if somebody listening to this wants to go and negotiate on their behalf. I'd remember the old TV show Columbo. I think you guys are probably old enough to remember that guy who had that, uh, he had a cigar in his mouth with a crumpled raincoat. And he, as he walked out, he just asked that question. People, estate agents in particular, don't like it when potential purchasers act smart. And so by acting dumb, you can ask questions. How did you come to that price? Why is the vendor really so... Now, you don't believe everything you're told, but I think you do better by acting dumb than by acting smart. It's funny you say that. Um, we had a client try to buy something last week and there was there's no real comparables um, for this property. Um, and, you know, the comparables they did use for it, it was... Uh, actually, this was like yesterday I was chatting to a client and comparables, it's up in the beaches where I am and I just brought the properties up and they don't look... They're not really comparables, right? And... There hasn't been many that are sold in this pocket in particular in the last six months. And, you know, is that sort of your, your best tip there is to sort of, you know, act, um, sort of ask the agent, say, hey, well, why did you come up with this price? Like, I'm not sure what it's worth. Why do you think it's worth that? Like, rather than, no, 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 this property can't be worth more than 2.7 because of X, Y, Z. Do you know what I mean? Eventually you come out with your knowledge, Chris, but I think when you start off, uh, get as much information from them as well as the information that you've researched before you go in. So that's another rule. You don't go into a negotiation without knowing what the end result is. A lot of people go in, especially with property, deciding I'll work along the way and I'll find out what I'm going to pay or if I like it uh, down the end. But I can see you nodding your head, uh, Veronica. A good negotiator knows at the beginning what it is. So it's a game. There's a set of rules. There's a beginning. There's a middle. There's an end. Now, that's not the same as if you go and buy an ice cream in the shop. It's a quick negotiation. They ask a price, you pay it. But for something like real estate, 
yeah, there's stages to the negotiation and you should go in already knowing where you're going to finish It's actually, off. it's so true. People often get themselves engaged in a negotiation before they realize. And so that you mentioned to something, you refer to something called the nudge, right? And and that is where it's really like that whole step-by-step. It's getting people engaged and it's that sort of consistency bias that, that gets us engaged in action that we then have to continue and I've seen sales agents do this very effectively where it's like they're struggling to sell a property. They're struggling to get offers on the table and a buyer's sort of sniffing around and they said, well, you know, are you ready to make an offer? It's like, no. Well, you know, well, what do you think it's worth? Well, you know, I don't know, $1 million. Well, well, you know, it, it doesn't hurt to throw your hat in the ring. Why not just put an offer forward at $1 million? If you feel like that was a real good price for it, why, why not just throw your hat in the ring and do that and let's just see what happens, see what the vendor says. And i actually watch people get offers this way from people that weren't even planning on making an offer. And then all of a sudden they find themselves in a negotiation and it's hilarious. (laughs) Now, interestingly, a lot of people suggest you should make the first offer in a negotiation. I don't agree with that because many people say, well, you're setting the anchoring bias, you're setting uh, what's going on. But in many cases, uh, if you do make that offer of a million dollars, you're already above where they were hoping to be. So I'd rather hear what they have to say, especially in a real estate negotiation. And that doesn't mean you offer what they're asking, particularly in the the current market. But you're right, don't be tricked into making another offer. How often have we seen that at auction, Veronica, where the agent comes up to you and says, hey, taps you on the shoulder, just another 10,000 and you'll put it on the market, it'll be yours. They do, and then it suddenly snowballs and goes wild, and you've lost it's it. It's hilarious, actually. When we have a phrase in our business, we talk about you know that agent will nail your feet to the floor if you turn up there and you're actually ready, willing, and able to buy that property. Don't you know? We'll say to people who who have not wanted to engage us, for instance, and they they often it's because they don't really they're not that confident they're going to be able to afford it. But we know the market is such that they probably have a good chance of buying that property if they turn up. So we'll actually warn them and say, if you're not convinced. And you're not 100% committed to buying that property. Don't go to the auction because I can tell that there's a gap. There's an the doors open for you, and you haven't done any of the preamble. You haven't done any of the work, and that agent is able to smell that, sniff that that little gap out open, and will nail your feet to the floor. You will buy that property. The amount of people I've said that to, and then they've gone and bought the bloody thing. I'm like, that was not me encouraging you. That was me warning you, <laughs> but, you know, they are totally unprepared and, and, and undefended against somebody who does this for a living, and they don't even realise how how vulnerable they are to that. Well, that's part of the reason I wrote the book, Negotiate, Influence, Persuade. In fact, one of the very large uh, property uh, state agency chains has bought hundreds of them to give to all their uh, salespeople to learn the art of negotiation. But I think it should be also levelling the playing field that the average consumer should understand the game and what other people are saying and what other people are doing. But because you only buy real estate occasionally and because it's such a big expense and I guess uh, such an emotional thing, especially if it's your house, but it also happens with property investors, it's very emotional. Um, you actually need somebody to temper the emotions. So you're allowed to get emotional about the house. You're allowed to feel it, fall in love with it, but you shouldn't get emotional about the numbers and figures. That should be done uh, with some sense and some forethought. Michael, do you think there's a danger though when you're applying the negotiation rules in life too broadly where 
you know, especially in service providers where you negotiate too hard and then your service level will drop in line with what you negotiate, if not further, because someone says, well, you know, it's not much profit in this for me. So you're not really that important for me. And, you know, like, for example, we're, um, we're hiring quite strongly at the moment. We've got recruiters and, you know, it's, it's a negotiation on their terms, right? And, you know, I could go in really hard knowing we're hiring multiple people, but, you know, knowing that that then makes me less enticing as a customer for them, you know, so what's your thoughts around the dangers in, in too much screwing over the, 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 whatever the other provider and then end up having, getting the short straw because you've gone too far? Well, it depends if it's a short-term relationship, like buying an ice cream or buying something that you'll never go in there again, or if it's the beginning of a long-term, as you said, service relationship. And in that case, no, you, you want a good deal, but you don't screw over the other party, especially if it's an employee, uh, because it's going to come back to bite you. I fully agree with what you're saying. So you've got to understand what the nature of the negotiation is. Same with negotiating with your life partner. <laughs> you couldn't choose the battles that you negotiate with and the ones you don't. I'm not putting the bin out this week. You can just sit there and overflow. <laughs> you talk about two motivators, inspiration and desperation. And I thought that that was really interesting, right? Because it's sort of, in a way for me, it goes to explain why we often feel that our options are limited when we're under stress. And of course, when you are under stress and you feel like you've got limited options, you are, your negotiation powers are quite drastically diminished. Can you elaborate on those two uh, motivators? Inspiration. You've read the book more recently ah. than I have. <laughs> so it was inspiration and... and... But did, did Chat GBT write, write your book, did it? <laughs> no, 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 no. Actually, that was before ChatGPT, and actually, I, I I wrote that one, but I have been using it uh, lately to to write some some blogs, and I'm having a, a lot of fun with that. But the desperation is if you don't have other options, and and at the moment we're seeing that in the rental market, aren't we? Where uh, there's just no properties for lease, vacancy rates are very low, rents are going up, so uh, we, we're seeing people desperate and. Uh, paying anything to get in or tenants paying higher rents uh, j just to stay there. They don't have the power of negotiation. Of course, uh, the, the people who are saying about talking about the ugly, greedy landlords at the moment uh, have forgotten that for 10 years, uh, rents didn't keep up with inflation. And so property investors are not putting up the rents just because interest rates have gone up or because they can. It's just because of the supply and demand situation. So again, as I said earlier on, one of the powers of uh, negotiation is if you have options. So the desperation is, hey, I got no option, so I've got to buy, sell, whatever the uh, it is in your negotiation. Well, the inspiration is the excitement and the fun of things. And in fact, it's normal to be emotional about most negotiations. And I guess that's part of the fun of it. But if you don't feel you're in control, uh, then negotiation stops being a game. So I think you should treat negotiation as a game that you like to win, but you've got to be involved, but not too much that you don't get disappointed if it doesn't work out your way. Do you think there needs to be real options? Like one of the buyers agents we work a lot with sometimes uh, in the eastern suburbs, um, you know, he's known for, he'll basically, if a client's, even if they're in love with a property, he'll find another property on the market that's, you know, comparable in some sense. Um, who's selling through a different agent, he'll have the contract for that property. Um, he'll have a building and pest or a contract review or something printed out and he'll be in the office of the agent saying, look, 
you know, unless they can get it for this price, they're going to be buying it for this price. And the reality is it's not really an option, right? They're not really considering that problem. Sometimes they are, like it might be an auction a few weeks in advance, but do you think it's just the belief that the agent believes that you've got other options? You don't actually have to have other options. Well, if we talk about real estate, the agent similarly wants to do a deal. They uh, basically get paid by doing a deal, getting the right deal for their client. Most agents are honourable and are trying to get the right deal, the best deal for their client. But again, sometimes in today's market in particular, it's getting the deal done where the selling agent is doing this right, right service. So yes, they similarly have the butterflies in their tummy and uh, the little bit of a nervous, oh, I hope this deal comes through, especially when there's fewer buyers around at the moment. So yes, I, I have no issue with turning the table on selling agents. It depends upon your relationship with them. So there are some agents that we know well, I'm sure similarly with you, Veronica, where you can speak openly to them. And that's where the benefit of having a good buyer's agent, because you speak the language of selling agents. So I, I learned German. It was the second language I learned. My mother was from Austria. And if I go to Europe, I can actually speak German, but I don't really get the nuances. I don't get it right. And that's the same with people going speaking to a selling agent at the moment. They sort of know the right things to say, but they don't get it. But you or I or your team, Veronica, when they speak with a selling agent, you know the things that are going on there. And with a good relationship, they'll let you peek behind the curtain. So I wouldn't play that game with somebody I know well. I'd rather speak with them and say, okay, what do we need to do to get the That's deal done? That's such a good point because I know that there are certain um, agents, absolutely, we know who we can have those frank conversations with, those we can't. We know those ones that follow the same and they will play the games on us and we're like, come on, guys, we know what you're doing and we know what we think about them. So therefore, you're right, we wouldn't do that to them either. Um, I thought there was another in interesting observation in your book that type A people <laughs> are impatient to get the deal done, right? And, and you know, let's face it, a lot of agents are type A, not everyone. And and I know myself because, of course, I, I, I'm a type A person and I was reading that going, uh, there are times when I probably uh, have my in my own personal negotiations for myself. I'm a lot more disciplined when it comes to my clients, I have to tell you, Um and, you know, where I probably do give it away too quickly because I just want to be done and done and dusted. And there's times with our clients where we say, no, no, no just cool your jets. We, we are not going to miss this property, right? We are not going to miss it. We will promise you we'll not miss it. But waiting is going to be to your advantage. Because they don't have the perspective to understand yes. that, Veronica. You've got the perspective to understand what has to happen in what order for the deal to get done? True, but, you know, I was thinking about that, you know, type A people impatient to get the deal done. I thought maybe that's why I love auctions so much. Because, you know, the auctions are where it all comes to a head and there's no dribbling along at the end. Well, there's very little. You might pass in and have to negotiate it. But generally speaking, there's a very clear end point. <laughs> it brings it to a head. Yes, I love that. Yes. Sure. And, and, again, that creates a lot of anxiety for people who are not used to that because uh, it does bring it to a head and you're there out and exposed. In Melbourne, most of the auctions are done in the street. There's very few in auction rooms like you do in Sydney. So there's a level of street theatre as well. And I believe Melbourne auctioneers in general are better than auctioneers elsewhere in the world. Good auctioneers here uh, really can. I've seen it and uh, drag that extra 10, 15, 20,000 out of people 
the best auctioneer I know, and I'll say it out loud, is Philip Kingston from Gary Pier. I do remember him uh, saying to somebody in a crowd, I know she's not shaking her head saying, don't go any further, but you realise when you get home, if you don't buy this property, you're in trouble. <laughs> and guess what? <laughs> he bid It's more. amazing when you, yeah, we watch, same deal. I like going to auctions even when we're not bidding because I do love watching that skill of, of the auctioneer taking advantage of people when they're under pressure, basically. And people think that they're they're a good match for the auctioneer when they're an extrovert and they're confident, and they've got no idea. That person practices that art. You do not practice bidding at auction. And so I often feel, see these alpha, you know, alpha males in particular, and on the odd occasion, alpha female, but typically alpha males, think they're outgunning the uh, the auctioneer, but in reality, they're just putty. But um, it, it, it is... It never, it never ceases to amaze me. But one of the things that it always interests me is the auctioneer can get an underbidder who they know is never going to buy the property, but they can manage to get an extra 10000 out of them, which results in the ultimate buyer getting, coming in with another 10000 or so. And so I've watched so many times when that, ex, that auctioneer has really paid for themselves over and over again by managing to convince somebody that who doesn't have open hill of getting the property i can see that but <laughs> managing to convince them to throw in one more go <laughs> and they've worked for their vendor that's that's one of the one of the benefits of auction when you've got a lot of buyers on a property that's the beauty of it during the boom times when you have multiple bidders similarly uh with an auction let's talk about auctions because at the moment some auctions are passing in and so how do you negotiate if you get it passed in and in Melbourne, in general, auctions are held outdoors. And then what they do is they bring you inside on their turf. And they have you in one room and the vendor in the kitchen at the dining room table. And they try and get you together. And my little tip is, don't go inside. Keep it on your turf outside. A couple of reasons. Because what tends to happen is uh, the other selling agents are going to hover around the people who the underbidders and tell them to stay just in case it doesn't go is it the neighbors is it somebody real so you're actually outside seeing what's going on seeing if there's anyone else around you're still doing the negotiation um, and the next step is to ask well what's their reserve oh we just told you what the reserve is um, um no what's their reserve now that it's passed in so there are times to play the game to your advantage and in general, we are in a buyer's market, but A-grade properties and investment-grade properties, A-grade homes, they're still selling well, Veronica. I bet you're noticing the same as we are. There's a shortage of good properties. So even in today's market, and despite all the good negotiation skills, uh, there's a shortage and you may have to pay a fair price. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. 
Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au It's funny, we had a client by Melbourne, um, uh, not this week, last not last weekend, the weekend before. It was two buyers agents, um, two fierce rivals um, that I know both of them. Um, and uh, the the client on the other buyer's agent, I spoke to that buyer's agent, um, and they had set a limit, but that because they were losing this property, the client increased the limit mid-auction, um, and then they almost increased it a second time, um, and so they went up 20 grand, um, and then they were trying to, and the buyer's agents told me that they wanted to go another 30, right? So they were you know, you know, not a great place to be negotiating. My client um, was at the auction as well, and they and he and he basically said he could see what was happening. Right, he could see that they were at their limit. You know, it was in, in negotiating in an auction, even if you're using a buyer's agent, telling the buyer's agent to go further, and then this buyer's agent knew they had it in the bag, right? Because they still actually had quite a bit of budget left, to be honest. And the other person was being a bit optimistic to get it for that price, we believe, but that was still the underbidder. And the good thing is that buyer's agent on the other side told them to stop. You know, like. A, you're above your limit. B, I think the other buyers have got a lot more in the tank and you're going well behind what you told me. Like, uh, you know, so it's interesting, isn't it? The key with auctions, I guess, is is really knowing that, testing that limit and role-playing before, right? Is that is that your best advice? Well, there's two lessons that have come out of what you said. First of all, go in with, and Veronica's written that well in her auction book. She's the expert at auctions saying that you should have three prices. You should actually have the price that you think the property's worth, the bargain price you'd like to get it at, and then the stretched limit that you're prepared to pay a bit more if it's the special home for you, because you'd be disappointed on Monday if you saw the results that somebody else paid a bit more. So go in and then you you don't change the the figures uh, uh, afterwards. So first of all, go in with your limits and, and, and then don't be uh, changing it based on emotion. Uh, you you should start the negotiation knowing where you want to end up. I'm really glad to hear that that buyer's agent said to the client, don't do it, because I've seen buyer's agents at auction where they turn to the client and go, do you want to keep bidding? And it's like, what on earth are you doing? How are you providing any uh, anything over and above what they can do all by themselves? They can give that game away to the, everyone else in the room by themselves. They don't need an, an, an agent to help them do that. And it does astound me at times. The other lesson is that the auctioneer is not your competition. In a proper auction, it's the underbidder who's your competition. So a good auctioneer will get the underbidder up, but uh, people are worried about these good auctioneers that are there, and there are some that are excellent auctioneers. Don't worry about them. Just hope that there isn't somebody else with deeper pockets. We lost out at an auction uh, for a home for... Um, uh, the son of a friend of ours on, on the weekend because a wealthy father bought this lovely terrace house for his daughter. He had much deeper pockets. So sometimes all the best negotiation techniques and the author of the international top-selling book doesn't work if somebody's got deeper Which pockets. Which actually leads me to a question for you because you've got a whole chapter dedicated to dealing with liars, difficult people and type A personalities, which we did touch on before. But when and how should we pull up stumps and back out of a negotiation? Well, again, it depends if you've got options. It depends how important it is to you. And there are always options, even if at the time you don't feel that way. How often have you seen, Veronica, that somebody's bought a house 
and it wasn't really perfect for them. And the right one came up three weeks, two weeks later, just around the corner. Uh, but but because they felt they didn't have an option, they've just ended uh, an option. They've just ended up buying it. Uh, now it wasn't their first choice, and we always have to make some compromises on what you you buy. So you're never going to find a property that ticks all the boxes. But if it ticks most of them, um, fine. And if not, then you've got to play the game, but not take it too seriously, and you move on to the next one. Well, you said your three powers, right? Like information, time. Um and options, right? And we did an episode with Fiona uh, McKenzie, I think her name was, on a masterclass on negotiation. My big takeaway I still talk about now is the Batna, which, you know, the best alternative, I don't know exactly how it goes. Um, but um, that, that, that is... That it's was, your fallback position. <laughs> yeah. Your fallback. So you're other, your alternative, you know. Um, and but it's first two, time and information. Like, it's almost like, you know, you can be the buyer that not telling the agent anything, right? I'm not telling you any, I'm not telling my budget, where I want to buy, et cetera. But that's not going to help you, right? Like the other thing is, you know, I could tell the agent, I would just buy whenever the right property comes up. Like that's potentially not going to help you as well, right? You know, because a bit of urgency knowing you're ready to buy and you're ready to take action and you want to buy puts you on a bit of a hot list. You know, their budget, them knowing exactly what you can stretch to will mean they'll start showing you properties that they, you know, maybe off markets or pre-markets that you may not even get looking at. So is it the options really the key thing that you think buyers really need to, and especially from other agents, because agents hate losing their buyers to other agents, right? Um, do you think that's the key thing for property buyers rather than the first two? Well, there's two sorts of buyers, aren't there? There are those that buy emotionally and buy the first house that they've seen yeah, because absolutely. they fall in love. And then there's the other extreme spectrum where there's the, the analysis by paralysis, they do all the sums, they do all the work, they're worried about what the Reserve Bank decision is going to be, they think that the market's going to go down, I'll try and time it. You know, I, they know per square metre how much the property should be, and they lose the perspective of, hey, it's not that important over the long term. The more important thing is to buy the right property in the right location that will suit your family if it's a home, or that will have good, strong capital growth if it's an investment. So I guess we're talking about different sorts of people, Chris. So different people require different advice. And that's why to make the right decision, you need to get the right advice. And if you take your own advice, if you're doing this once every seven to 10 years, you're in a, such a disadvantage. Veronica, I know we keep going on about this, but I know you genuinely believe your services help people. I genuinely believe our services help people. Uh, and so I think one of the big negotiating mistakes people make is actually negotiating for property on their own and trying to do it on their own and not engaging somebody whose job it is to buy property all the time, all day, every day and negotiate on your behalf. They can handle negotiations. I'm sure we'll do the research and the, all the rest, but I used to say it levels the playing field. I disagree. I think it actually twists the playing field, puts it in your favour, uh, changes the balance of power completely, having a representative on your side, a professional negotiator on your side. I think it's so hard to negotiate on your side because, you know, unless you've been in the market a lot, right, and you're really patient and persistent, which a lot of buyers, they still don't have all the information they need to know. Like clients will say to us, what do you think about this property? And, you know, I might be able to give them a bit of an idea on fundamentals, right? Like, these and this is the type of property within that area that could be the best but ultimately whenever it gets to what should i offer or what's it worth 
then that is way beyond the pay grade of, of someone, right? Like that is where you need that local expert to, you know, get in the agents here and have the information. And I think that's the, I think a lot of buyers um, try it, but they're just like, you know, for the cost of the buyer's agency fee, if they're the best in the area, I think that's where they really prove their value by just getting that deal done and, and ideally at a price that's, um, yeah, that's better than what they were going to pay. Well, I love listening to your podcast and Veronica, I remember it was a couple of years ago, you made a smart statement saying the selling agent knows five things about the property that you don't, but that you should. And uh, so therefore, uh, the average buyer doesn't know why they're selling. They don't know that the other agency with the yellow logo has got a better property up the road for you. They don't know some of the things that could be wrong with the property. And that's really why it's not a level playing field, well, is no, it, Well, no, it's not. And it's interesting because different states have different vendor disclosure as well. So, you know, there's some confidence that I think some buyers um, sort of feel but shouldn't feel, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria, where you have higher degree of vendor disclosure than elsewhere in the country. And they seem to think that you don't need to check certain things. Like I was talking to somebody this morning about strata and, and the risk of special levies. And, and she was like, well, that's just quarterly quarterly levies. That's that's all you're talking about there. I said, no, don't you realise the amount of people that, that I hear say after they bought a, pro- a strata property to say, oh, and then there was a special levy I didn't know was coming. And it's like that is so eminently discoverable, but it doesn't have to be disclosed. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be disclosed, but is eminently discoverable. And you go... I'm sorry, I've got no patience for you. And quite often those special levies are uh, definitely more than what a buyer's agent would have cost them, you know. And just to not know that is crazy. And yet they just think that they did. They ticked the boxes. I got a strata report. Don't know what was in it. Don't understand it, but I got it. I got the contract reviewed and I got my pre-approval. And they think that they're um, three boxes ticked, due diligence done. And they have no idea what they don't know. Well, in a recent show, you uh, went through how the different states have got different levels of disclosure. And in some states, in Queensland oh, in particular, I know, there's none. It's just shocking. You're <laughs> <laughs> sorry, the vendor doesn't have to tell you things. <laughs> it's crazy. It's absolutely insane. I was absolutely gobsmacked when I realised how little disclose And the things that are disclosed are something like if there's a dispute between the neighbours... And if the pool either complies or doesn't comply. And I can't even begin to to start going through all the things that you really need to know over and above those two things. And out of all the random things that could be selected about a property purchase that are uh, uh, prescribed documents, that just seems so random. And so if you're going into negotiation and you, you don't have all the information that you need, you know, this is just a fraction of, of uh, what the agent knows that you don't know. And if you haven't learned to ask the right questions, you're not going to get the answers. And also some questions the agent doesn't have to answer. So knowing the difference, what does the agent have to disclose even when you ask versus what they don't have to even if you ask, really, really important. Another important thing at the moment, and again, we're in a buyer's market, is what offer do you place when you, okay, you've finally done all your homework, you've done your research, are you going to go high? Are you going to start low? You know, some people say you insult the vendor if you start low. I'm not too offended by insulting vendors, but that's another story. I don't particularly want to insult agents. Uh, but, but, but if you go too high, you're showing your hand 
and agents know that your first offer isn't going to be your last offer, just like we know that the asking price isn't really, really what the vendor is expecting. So I think that's, again, a, a tricky situation where you, you want to uh, have somebody who knows how to handle that middle ground. Very different to two years ago, Veronica, where if you didn't put an offer in quickly and a top offer, somebody would have yeah. jumped you. I think too is that, you know, there are so many variables in actually the offer process, but as you said earlier, you need to be prepared and have your end scenario in mind before you commence a negotiation. We're talking about that nudge, you know, when an agent can actually get an offer out of a buyer without the buyer hasn't even sort of realised that, oh, well, suddenly I'm in a negotiation without having thought all that through. So that's how you end up, I sort of like being a, a frog in a pot, it's, you know, they turn the heat up and that's how you end up being a boiled frog. Um, so it, it is very important to be very strategic and very deliberate about how you go into negotiations and gathering all that information is really key. How long the property has been on the market and whether or not there's been any price adjustments is, is an important piece of information there. If there's never been a price adjustment, they've never had any offers and it's been on the market for a long time, well, probably the vendor's completely out of control. You're going to have to go in with a low offer because that's the only way that you're going to start negotiating them down and be patient, you know. Um, whereas if they've just dropped the price and it seems like great value, I've seen properties that have been on the market for months and the, the price drops to where it's perceived to be value and all of a sudden there's two or three buyers on you. You go, well, where were you last month? Well, they were off looking at other properties that had a more reasonable asking price. And so, so just being on the market for a long time on its own is not enough. You have to understand the whole context. You also have to understand what the agent's going to do when you make an offer. So an offer verbally, in my mind, isn't really an offer. It's got to be in writing and you've got to uh, put any conditions you want there. But then what are they going to do? They have to submit it to the vendor. But who else are they going to tell? Are they going to tell the other agents in their office who are then going to go to all their potential buyers? Are they going to go to everybody else who's looked at the property and said, I now have an offer. Would you like to? I mean, that's what a good agent does, Veronica. Yeah. Do you think that's one of the biggest dangers is... Um, people just assume it's like buying a t-shirt, right? Um, you know, it's a hundred dollars off your 80. They say yes. And then, you know, that's a deal done deal. It's a handshake agreement. And they don't realize that when they go out the back with the t-shirt, they're going to start trying to, you know, find other offers and, and try to get 81, 82, 83. And, you know, do you think that's that people don't understand the rules of what's going to happen after the offer? They don't clarify it. And then they, all of a sudden is they, they get in this whirlwind and, you know, they, they almost feel like they've got it because the agent said yes. And there's, you know, we've had many clients gazumped, you know, um, where the agents told them a price and they've agreed verbally and the exchange contract didn't happen because something happened. The agent had this really sad story where the vendor didn't want it, but then up selling it or some strange story. Do you think that's the real issue with buy negotiation? Well, it goes back to what I said a while ago, Chris, that negotiation for real estate is not a, a single event. It's a process with a beginning a middle and an end. So the beginning is when you do your homework, you do your research, you decide how you're going to do it, you decide the price you want, and then you start the negotiation. And there's a whole process to, you know, at an auction. It's nice and clear. You know what's going on. It's unconditional. The best offer, if it reaches the reserve, it sells. For a private sale, no. All you're doing is you're starting the, the game that other people can now play on the same field as you. Do you think the behavioral bias is a, you know, we, we didn't go there in the first, but you know, you mentioned anchoring bias around, uh, you know, making the first offer and, you know, that 
reciprocity effect, you know, especially at auctions, etc. Sure that in the in the agents in the auctioneer mind, you're the one who really wants it, and they always keep coming back to you. Well, what's some other biases? You know, sunk cost bias, etc. What what's some biases you feel are a key in negotiation, and we need to be careful of? Well, time is a uh, one of the biases where if you invest a lot of time, emotion, doing research, uh, and I'm not just talking about property negotiation because you have to spend the time. It is actually a sunk cost, so to speak, where, gee, I've put so much effort and time into it uh, that, that I actually just got to go through and make it happen. That's also interesting when we review clients who have actually bought a property a couple of years ago, and they're so subjective, not using our services, but maybe have bought a property that is a bit of a dud today. They've got so much emotional sunk cost in it that, that they can't see that it's not mm. working. Have you noticed oh, the same, Veronica? Yep. <laughs> well, it's sad. It's very, very sad because the thing is that we have this sort of, uh, it's all tied in with confirmation bias as well, but it's like when we make these big decisions, we then seek to reinforce that we made a good decision. And, you know, we benefited from it as well in our businesses, Michael. Your clients would rave about your services in a way my clients rave about mine, and they paid us both a lot of money to do what they, what we do for them. And, and I, I know, hand on heart, I know that our clients have got very good outcomes, but I also know that there's a little bit of that bias that kicks into their willingness to recommend us because they feel like, well, we just spent a lot of money and so that must have been a good decision, you know. So we know it is and we know we've got very robust processes, but this also feeds into other other buyers agents that have been recommended and I've heard some recommendations to some pretty poor buyers agents and I'm like oh my god you don't even realize that what you bought is a poor asset because it's so early on in the piece you haven't had that that timeline timeline to to you know gather the evidence but in the short term because it seems risky it was risky and it's expensive you've got that bias, which is basically, I, but I made a good decision. And then you want all your friends to make the same decision because that yes, helps you yes, make yes, feel yes, better again yes. about the decision you made. So we're all, we all fall for this stuff. Oh, yes, we're human. Now, Chris, you talked about anchoring bias. Just to explain, a couple of weeks ago, I went into the CBD in Melbourne. I haven't done that for a long time. Took my car, should have taken an Uber, and I'm driving down Flinders Lane, and it actually shows on the signs outside how much it is. $25 an hour uh, for parking. And I thought $25 actually was half an hour. And I thought that's too much. And a bit further on, I saw $6. And that's the anchoring bias. Hey, it's actually cheaper. I'm actually, once $25 an hour or oh, half an hour seemed expensive, all of a sudden the $6 looked cheap until I got in and I parked. And when I left, it was $6 for the first 10 minutes and it cost me $62 to park. <laughs> it wasn't even Fell an for hour. That one. <laughs> but, but it's the yeah. first figure that's in your mind that it is where you said and it's much the same as estate agents use at auctions they don't say this property is worth a million dollars but they will say properties like this around this vicinity have sold for a million dollars so it sits in your mind that this should be as well i think that's happening in the market as well that people will say hey, you know and I'm careful whenever I see clients, you know, say this as well, you know, in 2021 or 2022, it was worth X, you know? Um, yes. And, you know, and it, it's hard not to think like this because it's like, well, th it was worth that last year, but last year, you know, in 2021 or 2022 was a different world. You know, it's 2% interest rates. It's not 5 or 6% interest rates. Um, it's complete FOMO versus it is now um, massive stock shortage, et cetera. So, 
you know, and, and so that's a real anchoring bias. I think a lot of buyers um, and sellers are dealing with right now because sellers are saying, well, I want to sell it what more than what I got or eat very close to what I would have, could have got at the peak of the market. Well, that's just not realistic. So do you think that's something that's really supports the market, if anything, because, you know, a lot of sellers, you know, get to that price point up the tree and go, well, yeah, I'm not going to sell it 20 or 30% under what I could have got for it two years ago. So I'm just got to hold my, hold my cards. Um, well, that's another good example of anchoring bias, isn't it? Plus also just the emotional time effort uh, spent on that. So I think we also got to remember there are two sorts of vendors and I guess purchasers. There's discretionary buyers and sellers and there's uh, non-discretionary. Discretionary means I don't have to. So at the moment, we're finding that people don't need their uh, $25 million home in uh, Mosman or Turek, when in fact uh, the $12 million home is working really nicely as well. So unless you're having a baby or getting divorced or moving house or moving elsewhere, a lot of people, the discretionary buyers, are just sitting waiting because you're right. They're thinking, my house was worth so much more before. It seems to be worth less now, but it really was always still worth a million dollars. So why would I give it away at $800,000 today? Now, that's not Sydney prices. You wouldn't buy a double garage for that, but I'm using those figures to explain what I'm talking about. So discretionary buyers are saying, uh, sellers, I apologise, are saying, I don't have to. Now, we've got to remember that most sellers are buyers and buyers are sellers. Sure, it's... Uh, uh, investors are different, but in general, uh, 70% of the market in good times is uh, people buying their own homes, upgrading, downgrading, m moving house, moving state. Uh, and so the, all these emotional biases are a, a critical part of their decision It does making. make me laugh though, because I mean, it, it it's like the same person can think so differently about their purchase than they do about their sale. And it's like, you know, very logical, smart people can fall into this trap. And um, and it, it makes me, it really never ceases to amaze me. And it's when you bring it to their attention, sometimes they're like, oh, God, yes, I get it. I, you know, if I am buying and selling in the same market, I have to recognize the same drivers that impact me as a buyer are the same in reverse, uh, impacting me as a seller. And, and I have to not think that it's a hot market when I'm selling and a, and a slow market when I'm buying, even though it's the same time frame. I think um, one of the things I want to quickly talk about uh, with you, Michael, before we wrap up is that um, this episode we are recording before we release our 2023 full or forecaster report, but it will be released after we release our full or forecaster report. And you are going to get a gong in this one, Michael. Now, we are reflecting uh, on... Does a gong mean I won no, or I've lost? it's a gong. Not a gold star. There's not. There's very few gold stars that we ever issue. But I wasn't in the previous one and the previous one when I got it right. And I read it and I thought, oh, she oh let me Oh, my God, you should have let me know for the following one. So yeah, hey. let us know, Michael. <laughs> if, you, if, there's, if there's something we, um, we, we didn't include you in, we can go back to eight, two or three years ago if you like. <laughs> So, for because 2022, do you remember okay. what you said in 2020, January 2022? January yes. 2022. Oh, that was before the war with Russia and Ukraine. That was when the Reserve Bank said that we're not going to raise interest rates till 2024. That's when we were at the tail end of a property boom. And we finished 2022 with three, uh, well, with, with actually... Five of the eight capital cities higher property values than they finished. 
and they started the year. And in fact, most regional areas finished higher as well. But having said that, no, I was much more bullish at the beginning of the year. And as the world changed, I changed my commentary. But thank you for thinking of me uh, and including that's all right. Oh, don't worry, Michael. There's lots of people this year. It's um, Everyone got caught up, myself included, um, with how fast rates rates rose um, last year. No one was expecting, you know, even well, the top, top commenters. I got it right for once, Chris. I never do. But in February last year, 2022, I locked in my interest rates, but actually for five years. So I locked in five-year fixed interest rates. And because of the size of my portfolio, it's basically commercial loans because I've got commercial properties and large properties at three and a half Well done. And I thought that was fantastic. But also the bank offered me variable rates February last year, 2022, at one and a half percent. I don't know how, I've never had a rate as low as that. And I thought, oh, I've got to put a third of it that way because... Uh, it's never going to go up. I, I'm so far. One and a half percent. Boy, has that gone up. <laughs> but I'm happy I've got the fixed rates. So I got some of it right and well some done. of it wrong. I love it. It's um, in January 22, you're absolutely right. The, the world changed again. And I think that's one thing we have learned ever since COVID is that things things change. And you did actually make a caveat, um, in which we will include, which you get a gold star for the caveat, which is unexpected things can happen. <laughs> so, well done on that. <laughs> well, interestingly, it is now three years since COVID started. And so it's. I actually looked it up and the first uh, lockdown in Melbourne, we had seven lockdowns, I forgot, uh, that was started, it was 30th of March 2020, when we had 20 cases of COVID and they locked us up for 45 days. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even the thing that's happened last week in America with, um, you know, there's a bit of a bank run on Silicon Valley and, you know, no one would have expected that a week ago and that's put jitters into the bond markets, has put jitters into, you know, the banking system again, you know, similar sort of concerns like 20, 2008 and so, yeah, a week ago that was not on the cards, right? Um, you know, and then, you know, two weeks ago people, the a month ago the RBA was very hawkish and, you know, now that they're a bit more sort of, these things are going to be okay with inflation. So just, you know, no, people who think so certainty of where things are going to go are just going to be uh, always constantly having to change their tune or admitting they're wrong. So um, have you got a property done for us, Michael? I have, but before we do that, if I could say the silicon, Peter Switzer covered it very well in his daily newsletter where he said, how could that bank not fail with the name Silly and Con <laughs> as part of their name? Oh, dear. <laughs> Point. Who thought of that one? Now, Property Dumbo. Uh, I should know because I listen to your show every week and I, I didn't come prepared for one. But I think we've discussed a couple of times the Property Dumbo of people trying to do it on their own, thinking they're smart and uh, negotiating on their behalf rather than trying to do it, uh, paying for advice, the best advice you can, well, the, sorry, the most expensive advice you get is uh, free advice that's wrong. What I recently found was the latest statistics from the tax department that showed that 50% of people who get involved in property investment sell up in the first five years. And those who own the property, when you've discussed it before, 92% never get past their first or second property. And when I've looked back over the years, that statistic hasn't changed. You would think 
that with all the information on the internet, with all the uh, podcasts and the blogs and the YouTube videos, property investors would be smarter and not make those mistakes. So the property dumbo we should probably discuss is that most people take advice from the wrong people, buy the wrong properties. And then I got an email from somebody who's asked us for help and advice just a couple of days ago because he was sold an off-the-plan property that is about to settle now and he's having real difficulty settling because it's not valuing up to what he paid and his serviceability is different to what it was when he first thought he could buy the property. Can I help him? Well, I didn't, I didn't tell him to buy that. Given all the podcasts, I think that a lot of the channels that the property spruikers are playing, um, they are very prolific in. Um, and I think they're the ones that they're targeting for reasons, uh, you know, the TikToks, the YouTubes, et cetera. Uh, and I think they're having, you know, enormous success in getting cut through and getting buyers to take up to poor properties. Um, and, you know, and, and, and the marketing machines that they put behind these things, you know, that they're going to the best digital marketing agencies, um, and they're doing everything from text to cold calls to, you know, they've, they've got the big commissions to pay the big marketing teams to, to push these things. And so I would say, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. The number hasn't changed, but I would, you know, the numbers are going to be this, even just as bad in five, 10 years time with the, the people who have done well out of property versus the people who do. So yeah. Veronica, for the next full and forced cash report, can I make a forecast? I suggest that in 10 years time, we're going to be in, uh, in three years time, in five years time, we're going to be there. And I'm going to suggest that 50% of people who buy property this year and next year are going to sell up because it hasn't worked. I bet you that there's a whole lot of people who are going to end up with only one or two properties. And I bet that there'll be less than 1% of people who get in property investment who end up with more than six properties, that 1% of investors who get a level of financial freedom because they make the right decisions. Yeah. So let's look back in five years' time and see if that decision, that <laughs> and the, forecast And the good right. thing about that forecast is that it's not really a forecast. It, all you're saying is that the current situation will not change. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael. Thanks for chatting, Michael. (laughs) My pleasure. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.